right, all right, all right. Welcome to Digging a Hole, the legal theory podcast. On this podcast, my co-host Sam Moyne and I talk about legal theory and whatever else is on our minds. Um, but uh, like Passover, we ask, why is this night on Passover? We ask, why is this not like all other nights? Well, this, why is this podcast not like all other podcasts? There's a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that Sam's not here. Um, Sam is uh, stuck in Kathmandu, which I swear to you all is not a metaphor for how much he wanted to avoid the uh, cocktail party we all just attended. Um, he's stuck there. He sends his apologies. The other reason that this is a um, a, uh, a different different is that we're doing this in front of a live studio audience. Um, and uh, and we're doing a special episode where we ha- we're having um, two students present paper. We're talking to students about their papers. And so uh, we're really looking forward to this. Um, and uh, with that, let's get to it. Nina Oishi, welcome to the pod. Hey. So good to have you here. This is all right. It's going to be a real clam bake. Um, so Nina uh, wrote a paper that I just really adore. Um, and there, one of the things I like about it, and I'll get to the content in a minute, is that uh, there are a lot of ways to do student legal scholarship. Um, but one of them is simply noticing something about the world and then exploring its uh, legal. It's kind of somewhere it's kind of like uh, legal, theoretical and legal in the informed reportage. Um, so Nina, you wrote a paper about the municipal bond market. And so really quickly for listeners who don't know what the municipal bond market is or who have the misfortune never to take one of my classes, municipal bonds um, are b- bonds issued by state and local governments and some other entities sometimes too. Public sector munis are tax exempt, uh, exempt from federal income taxes, so they're subsidized by the federal government. And state and local governments use them to build basically everything useful in America. Um, roads, bridges, and so forth. And so uh, what did you find about municipal bonds? Yeah, so this paper started because I took your state and local budget class. Um, Holla. Yeah, there we go. And I thought this would be the most boring unit, by the way. I was like, <laughs> you like look at it in the syllabus, and I was like, oh, God. Um, and it ended up being super interesting. And so we talked about it in class, and then I started doing a little Googling. Um, and I was talking with my friend Ezra about it, and we found this article that had been published in Bloomberg, and it was about how the big universal holders, so Goldman, um, BlackRock, were starting this municipal bonds racial equity project. But it was this one article in Bloomberg, and it was super vague. And I was like, this is really interesting, racial equity in the bond market. That's really interesting. And I went digging, and there was almost nothing there besides this one article and, like, a weird press release. Yeah, so this is this new phenomenon where BlackRock and a bunch of other entities announced a this new framework. Um, to start off with, even before we get there, like, how the, – the, the holders are announcing something. But first of all, like, how are municipal bonds regulated? How does this relate to whether they're regulated? How are municipal bonds regulated? Yeah, so they're not regulated like any other kind of bond. Um, they've been historically subject to way fewer regulations. Part of that is because the municipal bond market has been pretty good at not running into default. So the federal government has remained pretty hands off. Um, and it's not subject to the same kind of disclosures. So there aren't the same regu- regulation or registration requirements as there are with uh, publicly traded securities. There's no pre-sale disclosure requirements. Um, it's not subject to the same rulemaking from the SEC. And a lot of the regulations only affect the underwriters and municipal advisors, not the actual municipalities themselves. So what did this group of financial entities ask municipal bond issuers to do exactly? So... 
it's stated that this idea of racial justice, they're trying to create a conversation. Um, it took a lot of digging to actually find the questions. They were not published anywhere publicly, but it's a five page questionnaire where they ask about certain things. So they'll ask about um, some of the questions include voluntarily disclosing whether there have been settlements about police misconduct, uh, things like the demographics of the municipal bond government, uh, whether or not they're taking steps to create diversity and inclusion initiatives in their administrations. Um, and it's just this little questionnaire. It's totally voluntary and they can submit it if they want. It's voluntary, but it's coming from the entities that buy or that, that manage the money that buy most municipal bonds. So it seems kind of voluntary. Yeah, it's sort of kind of voluntary. It's unclear how much they're actually going to be looking at it, which is one of the big questions. How much this questionnaire is actually going to affect the decisions that they're making? What does race have to do with municipal bonds? You'd think that investors would buy bonds and simply wonder whether they are going to, uh, you know, pay back or what does race have to do with any of this? So for this part of the paper, I relied on a lot on Dustin Jenkins' book, The Bonds of Inequality and Other Good Work by a lot of... An excellent read, by the way. Yeah, yeah really good. Um, he talks a lot about how the bond market, while it's sort of a f- supposed to be facially neutral, the creditworthiness of municipalities is supposed to be neutral. In reality, it's never worked that way because especially in the bond raters would take into account things like poverty rates or the black population of a municipality, and they would use that to lower the credit score, which in turn means less funding for the municipality's infrastructure and public goods, and that in turn would lower the ratings even more. And so when you take into account the fact that these ratings have considered things like uh, the Black population or segregation, um, or even things like uh, police misconduct settlements, that can be used to penalize municipalities with these problems, and it means that the regulations of those bonds uh, can actually affect whether or not a city gets funding. Why would disclosure, though, matter to investors? So this is, you could see that they that there may be Jenkins' argument is something like um, uh, the fact of reliance on municipal bonds, and then the methods of ratings of municipal bonds have, uh, and maybe the existence of local governments has racially disparate outcomes. Um, but why would disclosure? Like, what's the what's the goal? But so the, the these purchasers are now standing in for government in some way and saying things that in other situations we might governments might the government require disclosure of information uh, kind of information when someone issues a security. Here, so the big investors are colluding to um, require something like that. Why would they want disclosure of racial information? Why would that be the case? That's an interesting question and one that I wanted to explore. We kind of see this happening with green bonds. And in that case, the causation is a little bit more attenuated. Really quickly, what are green bonds? Uh, Green bonds are bonds that are issued to fund things that are supposed to be environmentally friendly projects. So it can be ideas like uh, natural resource energy projects, like, I don't know, like hydro hydro energy or things like that, that a municipality might want to put on. And that's a little bit more clear because you can imagine that if a municipality got flooded by climate change, uh, they would have a lot of a problem paying back their creditors. It's a little bit more attenuated with racial equity. Um, There are some arguments that like there are some smaller firms who are really interested in racial justice making the argument that it hurts municipalities' creditworthiness in the same way that climate change does. So for example, um, if a city, for example, has really lo- high poverty rates among uh, its black population, for instance, that reduces tax revenue, which affects a municipality's ability to pay it back. But it's not necessarily clear that that's exactly why the big investors are interested in it. 
Um, is it just marketing? So one car argument people make about green bonds is that people want to buy green bonds, that there's a that the the cost of funding for things that are uh, green, that people are interested in the environment will be. So do you think that they're do, do you think that they are expressing a desire among their investor about purchasers to for racially just bonds? For sure. Yeah, because this is definitely coming in the wake of we're seeing Ferguson, we're seeing a lot of protests, we're seeing more of an interest in racial equity in local government. Um, and a lot of these investors are trying to make a name for themselves as more socially responsible. So like BlackRock under Larry Fink is trying to make itself into a really socially conscientious uh, actor. So it could be a lot of PR and marketing, especially because they don't really seem to have a credible locking in mechanism for how they're going to use this questionnaire. So you end this paper with a note of optimism being like a what we call pragmatic optimism, which I which, which uh, and I wonder why you think that. Um, and so, um, why shouldn't I be deeply, this make me deeply pessimistic? So there's a big literature that says, uh, the only a few small, a few big investment firms control, uh, kind of manage money on behalf of a lot of people. Some people think that this had creates antitrust problems. You can have your own, there's a debate about that. Um, um, but you've described a world in which a couple of big firms for their own interests, uh, have decided what's in the public interest and have basically supplemented or replaced or stand in for governments deciding what type of disclosure is necessary. So why shouldn't I think that this is like either elite collusion or um, or government abdication or something that should make me less optimistic? I mean, I think all those reasons are reasons that you should be skeptical of this project, no matter what. It remains the fact that the federal government isn't doing this. It remains the fact that these big questions of racial equity in local government are being left to, like, these elite capitalists to decide. Like, that is problematic. Um, I think one reason to be a little bit more pragmatic about it is that a lot of the alternatives right now don't necessarily seem incredibly workable. The SEC has not suggested that it has any real desire to require even more environmental or social uh, disclosures from municipalities. So it seems unlikely that they would want that from municipalities when it comes to racial justice. And at the same time, you know, there have been other cool proposals like uh, Omarova has a proposal about a national investment authority, and which sounds really amazing, but in some ways, but it would be a lot of. So you I saw like me shaking, like yeah, yeah, shaking my head of my skepticism. But there, there, there's productive disagreement on the subject. I like it, but at the same time, these are all like really big, uh, really big projects that would require huge federal interest and investment that I think we're not necessarily seeing. And to the degree that we do want to be talking about racial justice and municipal bonds more, that we do want municipalities to be thinking about it and to be seeing it as a as a good that they should be disclosing or that could make them more competitive in the bond market, I think that could be a positive. So these are two questions. Is it good? So the question is, like, to what extent do we think we should tie disclosure to borrowing in this way? And so you could ask, think of this in a couple of different ways. One is, do we think it is necessary or required that in order to borrow, you need to disclose this information? Or the government has decided, in fact, that we don't need too much disclosure or we need less disclosure in the usual bond. So why is it we do want to create disclosure systems here I mean, or use the market to do this? Is, it, is there an insufficient amount of information in the world about these subjects? Is it like, what is it do you think that we are achieving through this thing? I mean, I think part of it is that we're remedying 
remedying a historic wrong in the bond market. Like, it isn't just happening that we're talking about climate change now and we weren't before. It's that the bond market has been historically used as a tool that has hurt minority communities in local government. So I think in some ways, this is more than just going from zero. It's remedying something that has already happened. So let me ask another question about this, which is is kind of a weird thing that's happened in the world. If you were advising BlackRock or Goldman's, but congratulations on your new gig. Um, it's <laughs> yes. a, it's a, it's a, your, your law school loans are now paid off. Congratulations on that. Um, uh, would you, what would you advise them to ask if they're going, if we're going to effectively privatize our disclosure regime, what do you think they should ask for? Do you think that this is the optimal thing to ask governments to disclose? Do you think they should be doing things about, I don't know, other things? You could imagine all sorts of things they could ask for disclosure. So if you were the lawyer or the, uh, corporate social responsibility actor for BlackRock, would you say this is optimal, good, or what? That's a tough question. Um, I mean, I do think one thing that I would be really thinking about for them is if they're going to ask it, how they're going to use it, and how much they plan to take it seriously and to decide that up front. It's not clear from looking at it right now whether or not they plan on even using this data. And so if they are going to put the burden on municipalities, it would. I think it, the fairest thing is to be clear about how they're going to use it or whether they are at all. And are you sure they're going to use it in the direct that investors will them or other investors will use it in the direction you say? So one possibility of learning that governments uh, have lots of um, uh, have a, have police that commit lots of torts is to say uh, we should invest in them less mm-hmm. um, because. Um, uh, or that the ones that disclose, you know, like it's not clear to me that disclosing information about racial justice to investors, I assume or racial justice may be in the wrong term, information about race and local government to investors will lead to investors buying more bonds. I mean, you have to make a certain assumptions about the demands or interests of, of buyers that are not in any way obvious to me, right? So, like, do you think, in fact, it is the case that if I say that our, you know, my the municipality of Schleicherland is has a racially diverse workforce, that that will lead to me being able to borrow money at lower rates? Yeah, it's also not clear, right? You said which way it will go because we saw with Ferguson also when the report came out about the kinds of police misconduct they used it. Uh, rating companies used it to downgrade their credit, which you could also see as a bad because it means that there's less money going to a municipality that already has race problems when you could argue that public goods should be used to help those people. Um, so I think it's hard to evaluate municipalities on a wide scale. I think it would be more valuable to ask questions about specific projects that they were using it for. Yes, yeah. The last yeah. one, question I have for you, and I, this is, this is great, by the way, this has been so fun. It's, um, is, uh, uh, there are a whole variety of proposals to um, uh, inc- widen investment in municipal bonds. And so traditionally, municipal bonds are bought by exclusively by Americans and private holders because the big benefit you get is a tax exemption. If you're not paying, mm-hmm. if you're not paying income taxes, there's not a lot of benefit in getting the tax exemption. And particularly state bond, bonds in state are bought by residents in state because you're exempt from state taxes. Mm-hmm. Proposals like Build America Bonds – are designed to uh, give cash to governments when they issue bonds rather than making run through the tax system. And the one of the goals of this is to open up 
the purchasers, that suddenly Japanese purchasers or German purchasers will find buying bonds to be an interesting possibility, I mean, bonds to be an interesting possibility. There are arguments against this, and there's a really interesting literature on this. Um, I'm somewhat skeptical of it personally. But one thing that this would do is it would at least somewhat weaken the control of certain purchasers mm-hmm. over this. And so your story is about the strange benefits mm-hmm. of having a hyper-concentrated purchaser yeah. network. Um does this lead you to be skeptical of um, things that would broaden the purchaser base? Because I mean, if a if it's if it's being sold in Germany, and maybe they'll run their money through BlackRock, but maybe they won't. You know, yeah. um, uh, do they, this kind of thing probably wouldn't come off. So, would this? Do you think that a, a broader purchaser rate would be a good or a bad thing based on what you found? I think it depends. Um, I think one thing that we've seen in looking at ESG bonds and green bonds is that. The value in having more purchasers is that you get more socially responsible investors who will put pressure on these kinds of changes happening at these companies. So, for example, SRI investors put a lot of company a pressure on companies to make more environmentally responsible uh, decisions among their voting. Um, but another thing that could happen for sure is that it subjects municipalities to additional pressure from creditors who may want things that are completely not within the municipality's best interests. And I think one freedom that is happening right now with the municipal bond market is the lack of required disclosure allows municipalities to do what local governments think is fit. So thank you so much for coming on the pod. That was awesome. Thank We're going to ask you some more questions coming later, but we will uh, we will um, take, a, take a quick break and we go on to our second paper. Okay, sounds good. So, well, one type of student paper is um, this kind of phenomenon happening in the world. Let's look at all the legal and policy dimension. Another thing that student papers often do very well, and are maybe the, the one is getting unbelievably deep in the weeds of a single regulatory system. And this is a paper that is unbelievably deep in the weeds of a regulatory system. So, Karen Grushin, welcome to the pod. Thanks. I'm excited to be here to talk about America's favorite agency. What is America's favorite agency? Um, America's favorite agency is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Um, But in fact, that's not only what you're talking about. It's not just OSHA, but in fact, mini OSHAs. So I think one thing that a lot of people don't understand about OSHA um, is often treated as a federal agency, but in fact, it's a cooperative federalism program. Almost half of states run their own, um, as you call them, mini OSHAs, and they're these uh, state-level occupational safety and health agencies that uh, run, they're authorized by federal OSHA to operate in the states. So one of the requirements is that their regulations have to be at least as effective. And um, what does that mean? I think that's one of the difficulties that's um, been going on over the years. There are interesting uh, hearings that have occurred in Congress where there's been pressure on OSHA to articulate uh, what it means to be at least as effective. Um, and, you know, it's not really defined in regulation, and nor is it defined in statute. Uh, so I, it's sort of a puzzle, honestly. So, so we're we have this unbelievably strange, complicated, very important regulatory system, and you kind of investigate like how it fe- dealt with a crisis. So the the COVID crisis. Um, how did particularly did the state OSHAs, state mini OSHAs? I don't know what to call them. The state they're called the state plans. The state plans. So generic. Um, the state state plans. How did they do? And basically, and how did the federal system do? Um, so what did you find? 
Um, so OSHA has certainly been in the news over the last year. Um, the agency has received a lot of criticism for its response to the COVID pandemic, particularly in the first year um, under the Trump administration. But seriously, who didn't in the first year? Who did well? It's a... Uh... Absolutely. Um, one, Zoom. Zoom did well, yes. Uh, a lot of people wanted OSHA, for example, to issue an emergency standard early in the pandemic, uh, which might have had a better chance of issuing violations. Uh, and you think they should have done that? Uh, that's the view I take yeah. in the paper, um, in part due to my research about yeah. the state yeah. plans. So what did you find about the state plans? So I found that uh, some state plans were really vigorous, um, and they enacted emergency temporary standards and conducted very substantial enforcement. Uh, some state plans didn't issue any of their own emergency regulations and conducted little to no enforcement at all. Yeah, so this is something I found interesting. So you have this unbelievable data that you did, that you collected through uh, Freedom of Information, really cool stuff. But over the course of it, you look at number of investigations as evidence of like kind of being better. But it's not in any way obvious to me that more investigations is better. You could think about this. One thing is like you wouldn't say a police department that has more arrests is a better police department. So why is like more activity? You could imagine a system that's really effective would have gotten complete compliance. They wouldn't have to investigate anyone. It's like a perfect. Yeah. Why is it that you think that like more activity is better? I think that in the occupational safety and health world, uh, it's understood that OSHA is dramatically under-resourced and underfunded. Um, there are statistics that if the agency wanted to investigate every business once, it would be decades before they had the opportunity to do so. Um, and so the position I guess I'm taking in the paper is that there's going to be more violations than any federal OSHA or state OSHA can really investigate. And so more activity does tend to be better because it's capturing more of those violations. Um the other one is that compliance is costly, right? So that we might imagine we have a strict rule, but we enforce it weekly. And the idea is to like get the worst ones. And then like kind of the way that we only enforce the speed limit against people who are going a lot over the speed limit. And if you're just going 58 miles an hour, you're, like, you're okay. So why is more OSHA better? Like, is it always better to have safer workplaces? I do think it's always better to have safer workplaces. Uh, one of the interesting features of the state federal regime that's been noticed over the years is that uh, federal OSHA tends to uh, enforce in fewer workplaces but issue higher penalties, uh, whereas the states tend to actually be much better resourced. Um, they have many more staff. They conduct many more inspections, and they tend to issue um, lower penalties. So this was like a great example of like the Beckerian theory of enforcement, right? Which is like it's like a uh, like a like um that you could either have strict penalties but occasional like very weak monitoring or lots of monitoring and weak penalties. That these are two theoretically they should create the same amount of deterrence. I thought that was kind of a neat finding. But so the question I have is that you have all this finding during COVID. I'm wondering like how fair is it to judge OSHA by COVID? I mean. Uh, you kind of note that they, which I thought was really nice, you make a really powerful argument that they kind of overvalued flexibility. Like it was like, who knows what's going to happen? And they could have issued a standard at the outset, which would have helped us. We'll get into it in a second with kind of enforcing against state standards. But like, I don't know, 2020 was really hard. Uh, like none of us knew what was going to happen. Why would, would it be, have been better for them to be clear when they doing so would, might have enshrined all sorts of things that turned out to be false. Like maybe they would have enshrined rules that say like you have to, I don't know, um, it's not safe unless you have signs that say people have to wash their hands for 45 seconds or like uh, put Clorox on their groceries or whatever, whatever the workplace equivalence is. So like why is it that like uh, flexibility wasn't the right answer here? 
I think if you look back at some of the early guidance from OSHA, they actually did have many of the right answers pretty early on. Um, people understood that ventilation was important. Uh, you know, they understood, you know, not that only sanitization was important, but that distancing was important. I think that they actually did have many of the tools in the toolbox. Um, OSHA had responded to other pandemics before, especially in healthcare workplaces. So, you know, to me, I think OSHA actually did have a lot of the knowledge going in. Um, and second, you know, having a standard really facilitates enforcement. It gives. So, could you explain that a little bit more? What? So, first of all, explain what a standard is, and then explain how it helps in help with the, particularly with the state plans, which is kind of the big, the heart of the paper. Uh, so, essentially, OSHA has two enforcement mechanisms. One is known as the general duty clause, and it's kind of like a tort standard that says. I told you we were in the weeds on this one. <laughs> The general duty clause essentially says that every employer has a general duty to provide a safe and healthy workplace to their employees. OSHA can enforce the general duty clause uh, for any issue in the workplace that causes a hazard. Uh, It's unfortunately quite difficult for OSHA to enforce. Uh, Like many torts, they have to show that it was a recognized hazard. uh, And there's other steps as well, but it it can be a really fact-intensive, you know, hearing process for OSHA to prove these violations. And so over the years, you know, they've been hesitant to enforce under the general duty clause. And in fact, during COVID, despite um, administrators coming forward and saying the general duty clause is really useful, um, they very rarely enforce the general duty clause. Um, By contrast, OSHA can also issue uh, standards, which are regulations. They call them standards in OSHA world. Uh, And these are... Terrifying place, OSHA world. (laughs) People are constantly getting hurt at the workplace. Terrifying place. You're going to the OSHA planet. It's going to be a big mess. So OSHA has standards on all kinds of issues, from respirators to fall protection to washing your hands. You know, most people who've worked in any kind of technical workplace have some kind of OSHA interaction that involves a specific OSHA standard. Uh, And so many people urged OSHA during the COVID pandemic to issue an emergency temporary standard. The agency has special authority uh, to issue an emergency standard without the lengthy process of notice and comment rulemaking. And they did this later in the pandemic, which maybe we'll touch on. Um, But some of the states actually did uh, come forth and start issuing these emergency standards for their individual states and enforce them quite vigorously. So... One of the things that you argue very is the standard would have helped achieve the goal of one of the goals of OSHA, which is uniformity, that there's like a minimum standard. And this would help ensure because the issuance of a federal system would help, uh, like you could tell if states were deviating from it. And so I want to ask, like, how serious is this uniformity to OSHA in the first place? So you note that people said when they were passing OSHA that they care a lot about uniformity, but they also created a system where states could opt out. And that's kind of like saying we're okay with a little disuniformity as well as uniformity. Um, And so I wonder a little bit if um, the, like you end up finding that some states are stricter and some states are less strict. And like, isn't that kind of like what the point was in the first place of allowing disuniformity, which was allowing states to opt out, which is like, it's not the case that, um, that we just get some variation around the federal right range. And so some better, some worse, as long as none of them are so much worse, it's okay. It's like, what are the statements that uniformity was the goal? In fact, like the, the real purpose of the statute? I think, and I've thought about this a bit since writing the paper, and I've spoken with one of my professors, and I think the better way to describe it perhaps is more like a uniform baseline. Um, And I think that's really what the concept of at least as effective as is trying to get at, is the idea that, you know, the federal government is going to set, 
you know, a floor of minimum safety protections and, you know, states can deviate upwards from that. Um, but establishing standards is, in my view, the easiest way of kind of monitoring state performance. But one of the things you find is that the federal government itself, you're kind of extremely critical of their behavior during the first year of uh, of the, of the you're extremely critical. It's a little strong. I think that's a mischaracterization of the paper. It's a, it is, it, you don't think that during 2020 they got it all right. Um, um, and so, um, one thing I thought was so neat about the paper is that it's uh, effort at explaining administration and not merely law ma- rulemaking or whatever. It's like, like the actual enforcement of laws and it's like an empirical study of how this worked. But the question is like, is what you're discovering something that's actually about cooperative federalism or OSHA at all, but rather that statutes are enforced by necessarily, especially complex ones, by political actors who don't necessarily share either your assumptions or the initial assumptions about, and we need to give them discretion. So sometimes they have differing preferences over enforcement. So are you discovering something that's unique to OSHA or is this something that's just like sometimes federal administrators don't comply completely with the underlying spirit of a statute or? Yeah, I think this is certainly common to other federal agencies, not just OSHA. I mean, OSHA is an executive agency, you know, an agency with a political appointee at the head. The appointee was Eugene Scalia, um, you know, for much of the first year of the COVID pandemic. Um, And so certainly, you know, an executive agency is, you know, going to be subject, you know, to um, the preferences of the political administration. And is that bad? I mean, so one of the things, I mean, we've obviously a long set of debates in administration, but it seems both inevitable um, and like, I don't know, kind of fine, unless you want to take a very pure view of like that the law, that the enforcement of laws is like extremely strongly governed without discretion. Like, so like, isn't this just like, it happens that you, is your complaint really that like, I don't know, someone else was somebody you didn't like was in office? So I think it's especially difficult in the workplace safety regime uh, where workers remedies are extremely limited to begin with. Um, So if you're injured at the workplace, generally you have the exclusive remedy of workers' compensation. Uh, There are very limited private rights of action uh, that you can use against your employer. So I think this is a space in which the federal agency plays a really critical role because there's very few ways uh, for workers to exercise their right to a safe workplace. So you suggested a bunch of reforms to OSHA that I thought were really interesting. One of the most interesting one was concurrent jurisdiction. So the way this works, as I understand it, is and that's very limited, is that the, the either the federal government directly enforcing or state governments can opt out. And if they opt out, they're judged by the federal government will judge whether there are specific rules or their enforcement is like as effective as the federal system. And you say, well, this is never really going to work or it can only work okay. Um, because monitoring is costly. And that seems like a very powerful argument to me. And one solution you suggest is concurrent jurisdiction. What is concurrent jurisdiction? What would it be? I'm excited you asked me about this because there's there's some news on this front. Uh, so essentially- We're breaking news here on <laughs> Digging the Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast. Remember, I'm deep in the weeds. Um, so essentially, the idea is that under state plans, state plans actually have exclusive jurisdiction over a workplace safety regulation in their states, uh, which means that um, what they're supposed to do over time is when federal OSHA adopts a new standard regulation, uh, each state is then supposed to adopt that standard or regulation uh, or a version that's at least as effective. And then they're supposed to enforce that regulation in a way that's at least as effective as federal OSHA enforces it. Uh, This is obviously difficult to monitor when you have 21 states. Um, And so 
what I propose in the paper is that OSHA should actually retain concurrent jurisdiction over the state. So if you have a state who's not adopting a standard, for example, OSHA could come in and enforce that standard in the state. And the breaking news is that um, one of the things I write about in the paper is that during the COVID pandemic, during the Biden administration, uh, the administration adopted a standard for healthcare workers. And OSHA put a call out to the states and said, you know, the state plans, you need to adopt this healthcare standard. Most of the states were like, okay, we're doing it. You know, it's on our next agenda. We're adopting this emergency standard right away. A few states kind of dragged their feet, and one of them was Arizona. And this was kind of the third, there had been a sort of series of difficulties between the Arizona state plan uh, and federal OSHA. And just last week, federal OSHA issued a notice in the Federal Register that it was going to consider revoking final approval, which is... Take them out of the state system and put them in the federal system. Not quite. It would give federal OSHA concurrent jurisdiction again. So they would retain their state plan for now, um, and federal OSHA would get that concurrent jurisdiction. So here's my question about concurrent which seems like a really, like, like a, a different way of achieving the kind of goals of both uniform, some uniformity and some variation, along with a minimum baseline is you note that OSHA is doesn't have enough money to enforce its rules. So if they suddenly had to also like ch- like also enforce in California or Arizona or whatever, like would that would it would it actually do a lot? I think that's a fair question. I think concurrent jurisdiction <laughs> at least kind of hits a middle ground because you know the concern is that if you have a federal OSHA takeover of the states, um, almost. No, no federal OSHA program is as well-staffed as a state OSHA program. So generally, and this is Greg Huber's book, which I recommend to everyone, The Craft of Bureaucratic Neutrality. You can find him around, around campus. So it's a, uh... um, you know, he makes the argument that, you know, you're not going to get more vigorous enforcement by replacing a state plan with a federal plan. But I think, you know, when you have these kind of edge issues uh, that a state, you know, is refusing to adopt a given standard, uh, maybe that's an opportunity uh, for federal OSHA to play a small but targeted role. John thank you. That was awesome. So, um, all right, we're going to do one more segment, but for this segment, we're going to need a volunteer from the studio audience. Who wants to come up and ask, answer some unbelievably straightforward questions? Anybody? No? Nobody? 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 Really? Come on! Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Fernando. All right, so we're going to get started. Before we start our game, we're going to start uh, with a um, first question. What is your favorite non-digging the hole podcast? Non-digging the whole podcast, or or the, any podcasts you like of any sort, really? Oh man! I mean, if the answer is the only podcast you listen so to is digging the a hole, one, you just got an H on your local government law exam. So congratulations <laughs> on that. But um, no, I, well, besides uh, this podcast, I actually grew up a lot listening to car talks. Not really a podcast, but it was my favorite. Proto podcast. Yeah, I listened to it all the time growing up uh, on long road trips, and I, I very much miss it. Uh, I've been listening a lot to maintenance phase, which is unpacking. Uh, it's unpacking like wellness and diet culture, but it's super fascinating. I didn't know there were many, so many junk diets out there. Um, so I'm kind of addicted to it now. It's a, it's a, I'm gonna I'm gonna go from here and exclusively eat uh, exclusively eat uh, I don't know the food of the foods of uh, northern Italy now. If, so if digging a hole came up with a really bad diet, maybe you could have a crossover crossover episode. episode. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. I don't know what it would be, but it would, yeah. yeah 
Uh, I really love the Anthropocene reviewed John Green. If you're out there, um, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was like meeting a celebrity, except someone who's not at all famous. It's really good. I like it. Um, he wrote the Fault in Our Stars. Uh, oh, oh, oh! So he is famous. Yes, very, very famous. It's a, this is. So it's, it's, I do this in class all the time where I'll say something like, this is the famous case of, and then I'm like, it's not like Taylor Swift famous. It's like, uh, famous-ish. It's, um, what class in law school influenced you the most? Okay, yeah. I Well, I actually, we were just talking about this, uh, Professor Schleicher, that the local government class I'm taking, not because I'm trying to get an H or anything <laughs> like that, um, but it actually has been incredibly insightful in teaching me how much I don't know and how confused I am, uh, especially coming into the class thinking that I know what's up and what's down, what's right and wrong, and now I'm leaving that confused as ever. So I think that that's actually been probably, uh, what was it, the most insightful class, or what was the question? Whatever, I, I'm just failing right now, so this is amazing. So okay, okay, sorry. Um, for me, it was in Torts, we read this article by Marie Matsuda, who is a critical race theorist, but uh, her she wrote this article that was kind of like half personal essay, half legal article, and it was the first time I had read anything like that, and then I was like, oh my god, like legal papers, like you can write them however you want, um, and so that was pretty life-changing. Um, this should come as a surprise to no one, but it was administrative law, and then advanced administrative law with Nick Perillo. Uh He really taught me so many of the foundational concepts that I was able to use in this paper and just the ideas about, you know, what an administrative agency does and how it tries to do that. Can you do a Nick Perillo impression? <laughs> what do you think this is, the USSR? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, he does amazing impressions. That was a good one. Um, uh, if you hosted a podcast and could have one law-related and one non-law-related guest, who would be on it? I would have Jack Balkin, who is just an absolute riot and brilliant and just takes you on an absolute tour of the universe in one lecture. He's, he's coming on our podcast, too. We're pretty excited about it. So, um, I do a lot of statutory interpretation legislation things, and I think there are just like a lot of – this isn't anyone specific, but like you read statutes that are just obviously so crazy or confusing and – I just wish I could like call up those people or like those drafters or whoever's suggestion and be like, what, what were you thinking? Like, what were you thinking? Um, so I would like to have them on a podcast. Like, like feastless, feastless members of the Senate, of the, of the Senate staff, basically. (laughs) Yeah. What were you thinking? What were you thinking? You know, I'd actually have, uh, my clinical supervisor, Munir Ahmed. Um, and the reason why is because he has the most amazing way of synthesizing a lot of information in a very clear uh, in concise way and also inspiring. Every time I leave supervision, I'm always like, oh my God, I just sat in my mind blown. <laughs> and I feel like we would have the fault of the sh- fault of your stars. It would be who, who starred in the movie version? It's like Ansel Elgort or something. And Shailene Woodley. Shailene Woodley. There you go. So we, we would Shailene Woodley. Uh, she's had a rough I, year, hasn't she? Yeah. Uh, she's officially done with Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I think. I think. <laughs> Seriously, fuck the Packers. Um, okay. Um, quick game that I'm, we've stolen from Tyler Cowen. Uh, Tyler, if you're out there, what up? Um, overrated or underrated? The experience of writing a saw, uh, which for, for non-Yale listeners, this is our final paper uh, where you have to write a long publishable paper in order to graduate. Overrated or underrated? I think oh. underrated. This was my saw. Uh, <laughs> a little more. It was, little it, was, more. It, was, it was two years of my life. Um, but... I just really ended up exploring something and going really deep into something. 
Uh, and it helped me build a lot of confidence as a, as my own individual thinking as well. I would say mostly underrated because I feel like the best way to explore something like you said is by really digging into it with a paper. Um, it becomes overrated in the last week of 3L spring. <laughs> it's a, for those of you in the studio audience, like you see, uh, uh, who uh, have not finished their saws yet, who I'm looking at, uh, this is for you. Now, keep... Yeah, I'd say, I'd say underrated in the sense that I know people say that it's stressful, but I feel like it's more stressful than what they've said so far, because I found it very stressful writing mine. So that makes it underrated or overrated? Oh, overrated. Overrated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> New Haven, Connecticut. Underrated. Absolutely. Totally underrated. Totally under, underrated as well. I agree. Give me a, give me, give me some facts here. Oh, New Haven, Connecticut is amazing. I mean, not only does it have some of, in my opinion, some of the best restaurants ever. Um, it also has a rich culture, rich history, um, people from all over because of Yale university come there, but also a lot of interesting local government politics going on in the city. It certainly is that it's a, we are now, the city's now going to officially use that. That's going to be posted on boards everywhere. It's going to be like next to the New Haven, rich history, rich, the best restaurants around. Endorsed by digging a whole podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Massively underrated. Love New Haven. Oh my goodness. Three endorsements for New Haven. I, uh, and we've been here through an entire pandemic and we're we're here to tell you it's massive. I have walked so many of the streets of New Haven at this point now, like through the pandemic, like gone on so many walks with fellow law students. Like I feel like I've been everywhere. All right. Um, Do we have questions from our studio audience for our wonderful guests or for me and for anything else? My name is Alistair. I have a very short question capitalizing on your co-host absence. Overrated or underrated? Sam Moyne. Ah, well, Sam is very highly rated. No, I'm kidding. Sam's the best. It's um, it's a, uh, it is a, um, it is, a, it is, it is very fun to uh, do a podcast with someone who is as open to controversy as Sam is. It's a, uh, it's um, it's a, uh, and so uh, I actually my favorite moment we uh, we did a, a a podcast event for admitted students and we were like looking for our favorite moment and my favorite moment on the pod was of that we've done which when I gave my universal field theory of Sam Wine's work. Um, and I know he doesn't actually listen to these episodes, so I can I can say whatever I want. Um, but it is it is a great pleasure. It's um it is it is uh it is, it is a great pleasure. It's um Sam and I uh uh. We, when we started the pod, our joke was that uh, if you added a negative sign in front of everything we said, we would we'd say the same thing. We'd agree. Like we said, I, I, in, that, in that I disagree with everything Sam says about everything, and he disagrees with everything I say. Uh, but it is, um, it is it is fun. So Sam Moyne, overrated or underrated? He is very highly rated, though. So it's uh, it's um, it's uh, uh, um, uh, but yes, it's all deserved. Come on, more questions. I can ask Caroline a question. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, why OSHA? Um, I got into OSHA. Um, it was my first year in the spring. I was in a class. It was like a policy lab about climate, animal, food, and environment. And my team picked up on this kind of niche issue, uh, which was ergonomic injuries among meatpacking workers. Uh, and this was before COVID, but this has been a long standing issue. Uh, and the solution that I ended up looking into very closely was whether uh, state OSHAs could regulate mm-hmm. uh, in a way to protect workers from these um, carpal tunnel and other repetitive use injuries. Um, just one nerdy OSHA fact. 
Um, there's oh, oh, we've already gone there. You don't need to start that. <laughs> As you surely know, you know the Congressional Review Act exists, and that allows Congress to overturn regulations um, from a prior administration. And the first regulation that was ever used on was an ergonomic standard from OSHA. And so the federal agency is actually quite limited in its capacity to regulate ergonomic risk, which led me to think about how these state OSHA agencies uh, might do the same. And then, of course, you know, COVID happened and just suddenly, you know, became clear that there was a lot more to explore. Hi, this is uh, Patrick. I'm a 3L. And I'm wondering what your dream podcast crossover event is. Oh. Whether with digging a hole or, you know, any any podcasts that you think would be a good pair. Oh, so it would be a good pair. So I'll tell you, I am writing currently in the process of writing a paper about law and basketball. And so I really, really want to personally do a crossover with the Zach Lowe podcast, um, which is a podcast about basketball. Um, uh, in terms of we, we've done a few crossover episodes. We've did, well, we did at least one. We did a crossover with the Strict Scrutiny podcast. Um, uh, uh, so we did that. Um, you know, what other podcasts would I like to do with other than the Zach Lowe podcast? Um, I don't know. It would be a great. How about you? What do you guys think? Who should we have a, who should we have a, a crossover episode with? <laughs> the answer coming from the crowd was the Joe Rogan podcast, which I, by the way, I, I, I feel like I feel like Sam would embrace personally. I think he'd have a lot of fun with that. It's um, it's uh, that 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 sounds uh, I mean, it's uh, it's I, I it, Joe Rogan. It, I, um, it's a thing. Um, who else? I do have a question. I think you asked who would the dream non-law related. I did. That yeah, we gone to. So I'm curious who yours would be going through. Is it still John Green for you? I'm satisfied with that as my, my response. Final answer. <laughs> oh, I, I, I definitely have one, but it is a, uh, it's a uh, Jurgen Klopp, the manager of Liverpool. That would be definitely my choice. It's not even a question. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is a, I'm an obsessive uh, uh, football fan, soccer fan, and um, uh, uh uh, like in like in people, the pictures we see, we see all these legal luminaries, and like the manager of Liverpool is like way above all of these people in my life. This is like it's like they're completely different levels. Like there's like he's like a demigod. So it, this is uh, this is where I would be. Jurgen Klopp. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> great. That's great. Uh, it's great. It's uh, it's always great to be made fun of by your students. It's uh, it's important actually. It's really it's uh, if you're not made fun of by your students regularly, uh, you're doing this job wrong. I, I'm trying to think. I think I would want. Oh, this is going to be so dumb. I think I would want like Ben Affleck and J Lo to come on, and I would want to ask them about their relationship. Oh, that's so fascinating, yeah. right? Yeah. Jenny from the Block. Jenny from the Block. Ben Affleck. J Lo. Uh, ask about that tattoo. Jennifer 2.0. I just feel like there's so many questions, and to get them both would be about that that early video from their first relationship. Right. Yeah. The Such, music, so the weird. Music video. Yeah. The music video. Very strange. So so many questions and. I have so many questions. So many questions. That the, uh, it's a. I don't think we can get them on this pod. I don't think they have a lot to say about legal theory. Never know. J Lo might like be sitting there with her like makeup team right now, like listening, listening, listening to, to the legal theory. It's, a, it's it, 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 she just did that that movie where she like marries a fan. So it's like maybe she just like really wants to be on a podcast or something. I don't know. Maybe it's this podcast. It's this podcast. J Lo on the next episode. <laughs> I have a question. Um, it pertains to the scholarship, actually. Oh. Um, are we? Yeah. Is that allowed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. You talked about the National Investment Authority proposal, and 
I don't really have a question so much as a prompt. And I wonder if you could like explain more of your sort of differing views on why that would be advantageous or not. Yeah. So right now, the way the municipal bond system works is that the federal government allocates very little money on its own for infrastructure. So it gives money to the states. But the way the states also raise a lot of their money for these projects is, like we said, through municipal bonds, which are funded by creditors. Investors like BlackRock, Goldman, things like that. On behalf of individuals. On behalf of individuals. Um, And so the idea for a national investment authority is this kind of centralized place where the federal government would be allotting money to to municipalities for infrastructure projects. And part of this proposal means that that way you have the federal government setting the agenda, um, focusing on goals. So in terms of the racial equity sense, you know, the federal government could say these are projects that are really important to us. These are ones that we're going to use the National Investment Authority to fund. Um, and we saw kind of a like groundswell of sort of support for this with the COVID crisis. Um, we saw an increasing kind of sense that the federal government was going to step in and fund municipal bonds. And some people were hoping that this would be a step closer to a national investment authority. But then Congress kind of backed off of it. So it's in less of a it's in less of an optimistic place if you're a big NIA fan like me than it was maybe about a year ago. But I think it's a really interesting idea. And I think there is value to having, especially in terms of a racial equity sense, uh, this kind of national priority setting. So I'm broadly uh, skeptical. I think the municipal bond market is one of the great successes of American federalism. Um, it, they, uh, the um, If you look back at the turn of the last century, um, American cities had far better and far more well-funded infrastructure than cities anywhere else in the world. And the basic reason for this, scholars think, is that they were able to fund projects without asking for permission from elsewhere. It's a big country, and they were able to fund projects without having to run it through a bureaucracy in Washington and get permission, and all of the kind of politicking that is results from that. And further, um, the reason the federal government doesn't fund infrastructure directly, there's no reason they have to do it through loan, is uh, is because, Lord, this again is like uh, uh, Barry Weingast and John Fairjohn argue that Congress distributes money on political grounds and they kind of spread it around too much, whereas cities or states can figure out what they want to invest in. And one of the um, uh, the um, great lessons of studying the bond market is that when you take like a con law class about federalism, it seems like the question is, is the federal government um, not limiting sovereign states and, and the powers of localities. But one of the things about studying the bond market is that federalism is a federal policy choice in a lot of ways, which is that we've decided to devolve authority and subsidize. Uh, many p- small governments would have no ability to borrow absent the way we subsidize municipal bonds. And so the um, the municipal bond market is a mechanism for producing uh, decentralization in a world where, um, in, in a policy area where we might think that this is where decentralization might make sense, and does surely create inequality. So, almost necessarily with decentralization to some degree, but also if you're relying on borrowing, if you're richer, you can borrow more. And uh, on the other hand, it solves the problem of making this all the responsibility of 
federal agency, um, which uh, with all of the problems that that would create and then or that making it subject to Congress people wanting to spread all the little projects here and a little project there. And so I think while from other things, I'm not such a big fan of decentralization for infrastructure spending. I'm a very big fan of decentralization because it's just very hard to imagine a federal agency knowing that they need to build a small bridge in Spokane, Washington in a meaningful, useful way. And so um, uh, the now the people who come up with these proposals, and the, the NIA is only one of a million. Mm-hmm. So every pres- Democratic presidential candidate who's ever lived has come up with a proposal for a, um, an infrastructure bank, which is uh, in the same family of proposals. And I've always thought these proposals were really dumb. And the reason I think they're really dumb, those the the more fun is that like we actually have a great funding mechanism for municipal bonds. Like governments can borrow at very cheap rates, um, and so it's not that we've we just might not spend enough money on it, but we have a like the, the borrowing capacity is there, and so. Um, the um, the NIA proposal. There's a lot more to them, and it's like a lot more than we could do here. But the one of the central questions is like, do you think infrastructure spending is the kind of thing that um, a should be done at the federal or local levels? And further, when you study federalism or decentral, it, it, like the degree to which the constitutional questions are all about like federal government imposing upon states in one way or another. But the if you actually look at the flow of money, it's very much a choice about decentralization that we are making constantly. And uh, I think this is an area where decentralization is attractive, but other people, you know, are, you know, want everything to be done in Washington or something. <laughs> Um, I have a very basic question for Caroline. Um, at one point, you, you referred to 21 states, and I was wondering if that is referring to the number of states that have state plans. And also, uh, for states that, I guess, opt out of having a state plan, does federal OSHA then operate and fill in that void? And if so, how does that work with how like understaffed and underfunded OSHA is? Um, thanks, Catherine. Uh, essentially... Federal OSHA is, you know, a federal agency that is relevant in all of the states. Uh, They pass most of the regulations that are implemented in most states. They have regional offices in 29 states and several territories uh, where they actually have federal inspectors who are the people who investigate and issue violations uh, in workplaces in those states. And then in 21 states in Puerto Rico, Uh, There is a state plan that does all of the enforcement uh, of the federal agency, of the federal standards and whatever other state standards they have added. Um, And so what this looks like is often, as you mentioned, um, federal OSHA is quite under-resourced and underfunded. Uh, It means that a lot of those state, those federal state agencies, you know, don't have a tremendous number of inspectors uh, in them. And with that, we're going to end. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. This is real, a real clam bake. This was great. Fun. Thanks for having us. Please grade my paper. And, and to listeners out there, um, uh, Sam and I are happy to take the show on the road. So if you want us to come visit your law school to do this, uh, just let us know. Um, we will do our best. But with that, um, that's digging a hole. <laughs>